0: This morning we're going to look at, (laughs) well, I'll tell you what, we're going to look at hell. And uh, it is not a pretty picture, it is not something that uh, I take lightly. Um, I I don't know that I've ever done a full-blown sermon on hell. I think I have in the past, I can't remember, but it is disturbing, it is difficult, and it is not fun. And I thank God for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? I think about what we just sang and I think about where we're headed and I think about the fact that God has rescued us and that God has redeemed us and that the Lord paid a penalty on the cross on our behalf that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. That's an amazing truth, folks. There's hope in that. There's assurance in that. There's goodness in that. There's something there that as we look forward, we recognize what God has done on our behalf and we recognize uh, how special that moment is, and then the opportunity for us to share with other people what it is that we've experienced ourselves, that God loves people. God loves people. I don't know if you've ever been uh, burned significantly. Have you? I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes people, I, my wife can drink scalding hot uh, fluids, coffee, tea, and she'll give it to me and she say, ah, that's not that hot. And I take a sip, and I mean, I can't, what? I can't breathe for the next whatever amount of time. And my taste buds are shot, so I can't enjoy my chocolate for the next period of time either. <laughs> I, I know you find this hard to believe, but uh, there was a point in my life where I had an earring, I didn't, I didn't have tats, but I wore, you know, Ron John. Uh, I won't give you all the visuals, it doesn't really matter. I drove a motorcycle, and I thought I was really cool stuff, and um, I, don't, I can, still can't believe my dad let me do that, but amen. I had played a baseball game, and I was a catcher, and so in Pennsylvania, it gets very humid, and I had, I had played this baseball game, and uh, I'd rid- I drove my motorcycle there. It was a big old motorcycle, 750 Yamaha, it was pretty heavy. And uh, wasn't very good at it, <laughs> which I thank God. I don't know how many angels were surrounding me when I was driving that thing. Not just for my protection, but anybody else's that came in my way, you know. Uh, but I got done the... the uh, game, I don't even remember whether we won, and I was tired, physically exhausted, because I was a catcher, and you're a part of every day, and you're always wearing the the gear, and so I had, you know, sweat a lot, put a lot of energy into that game, and just was tired, and so, you know, when you're riding a motorcycle, you got to be alert the entire time, and so I drove home, and... Got home safely, and our uh, uh, driveway was on a little bit of a slant. You kind of pulled into it. It was on a hill, and so you were coming down the hill the way I was driving, and you would turn right into the driveway, and when you did that, you had to be real careful because uh, it was very easy to lay that bike down. It weighed a lot, and so I I came through, and, and our driveway didn't really have a flat Surface in terms of the entrance. It was one of those curved kind of curbs. Does that make sense? It was like for the rain and everything. So you had to to get over that curb. It wasn't just a straight in. And so I had to gun it just a little bit in order to get over and properly align myself so that I could get down the driveway and get to where the garage was. And I did that. But I lost focus when I got to the very bottom and I started to uh, put the bike in a position where I was gonna kick the kickstand, but I I laid it down too far. And as a result, I had to lay the bike over. Now I had put uh, shorts on after the game and so I had shorts on and when I laid the bike down, I laid my leg directly on the muffler. Now, (laughs) It, it didn't feel good. Can I just say that? And uh, I jumped off that thing, and I was pretty mad at myself for being so stupid. And I picked that bike up, and it took a lot to pick it up and got the kickstand down. Man, I had a burn on my leg. Thankfully, I was going to the beach, and salt water does hurt, but it does also purify. <laughs> and so I was able to uh, heal pretty quickly on that thing. But I'll tell you what, that that left a mark in my mind, if not in my body. You know, when we talk about hell, folks, it is hard to picture and or imagine the suffering eternally of not simply the physical agony, but the spiritual agony of being separated from God forever. I don't know if if you've thought about that. I don't know if that's hit you at any point. It is indescribable to think that there's no hope, there's no rescuing, there's nothing to look forward to, there's no relationship, there's no goodness. I mean, you could go on, no love, anything. And forever. Forever. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? Apart from Christ, people are going to hell. I was in college and I uh, played baseball, as you know, and and my friend was one of the coaches and he came to me, it was right before summer break, and he said, Eric, would you stay a couple extra days? Uh, Before you go home to Pennsylvania, I was at Liberty University, and he said, would you stay a couple extra days? He said, I was invited to a Hell's Angels party, and I'd like you to go with me. (laughs) I didn't know what to do with that. I thought, well, that's an interesting uh, invitation, right? And we went, and uh, these guys were all there, and they were doing what Hell's Angels were doing, and... You know, it was a kind of a rough scene. We didn't go inside the place, but we stayed outside, and we shared Christ with a couple of the guys. But I can never forget the idea of how some of these guys were bragging about going to hell and that it was going to be a party. And I look at what the Word of God has to say, and I believe in a literal hell. I believe in a literal place, not a figurative, not an imaginative, Uh, place, but a a literal, physical place where people are going to be spiritually separated from God, physically they're going to be tormented forever. And I want to tell you something, I want to guarantee you something, that is not going to be a party. Apart from the grace of Christ, all of us would be going there. Apart from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving the payment that he made for us at the cross we would be going there. And I think that's an amazing thing. If that isn't something that is worth thanking God for all that he's accomplished on our behalf and saying, Lord, here's my life, use it in whatever way you choose, I don't know what is. And the point of the matter is, folks, there's people all over everywhere we go that have no hope, they have no assurance, they have no perspective, they have no purpose on the reality of their condition and the need that they have of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a message they need to hear. And we need to simply yield to the Lord and with boldness in God's timing and in his power, declare the reality of what God has done for us so that they also may hear the gospel and have hope. Let me look at a few things this morning with you. I was going to do the great white throne judgment, and as soon as I started getting into this first part, I thought there is no way and you will thank me because we would have either gone so fast that you would have been like, what did we just hear? Or we'd have been here for an extra 45 minutes, which I figured... um, Neither of those really work very well, so let's, <laughs> let's walk through this in a, in a way. Uh, in chapter 20 of Revelation, we looked at the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of all believers of all ages, right? The, Christ is the first fruit. He's resurrected, receives a glorified body. Uh, the rapture takes place. The dead in Christ rise, and we who remain, uh, Lord willing, if we're at that point still alive, those believers who are alive will be caught up together in the air, and they will meet those who have already gone on before us, will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, we will receive glorified bodies. We saw that the two witnesses were a picture of the resurrection because they died, their bodies were left there for uh, three days, uh, and the whole world rejoiced and in effect had a party, and then they were resurrected and they received their glorified bodies. The Old Testament saints are going to be glorified at the end of the tribulation, and I believe the tribulation saints are going to also be glorified at the end of the tribulation. All of those things come under the banner of what we would call the first resurrection. The second resurrection takes place at the end of the millennium, where all the unbelievers from human history will be resurrected and have to stand before the great white throne judgment. And the books will be opened and the book will be opened, and we're going to look at that even more closely next week. We also looked at the millennium, which is the physical rule and reign of Jesus from Jerusalem over the earth for a thousand years. Some people want to also make this an allegory or they want to spiritualize it, I believe in a literal thousand year reign of Christ from Jerusalem over this earth. And we looked at that carefully, the wolf and the lamb and the lion and the lamb and all the different factors there. It's an amazing picture of life on this earth with Christ ruling and reigning to where the consequence of sin is diminished. It's not completely expelled, but it is diminished to a point uh, where the enjoyment of this earth is really remarkable. Uh, We also, and we're gonna look at this more closely today, uh, the issue of hell, the issue of what is it that we're talking about when we talk about hell. And let me just put it this way, the lake of fire, We would think of hell in many ways as the lake of fire. It's a real place of eternal judgment that only those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ will be rescued from. Think about that. It's a real place of eternal judgment that only those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ will be rescued from. Let me give you three things And I'm going to focus primarily in on the first because there's just so much information on this. Hell is a real place for fallen angels and unbelievers. Folks, understand, hell is a real place. And it is for fallen angels, Satan and his demons, as well as unbelievers. We're going to look next week more closely at the Great White Throne Judgment which is for all unbelievers of all uh, ages throughout history, which takes place at the end of the millennium. And then the point of this whole thing is that only through believing in Christ can one be rescued or saved from eternal punishment in hell. So I'm going to take that message, and we're just, just going to focus in on the first point here. Hell is a real place for fallen angels and unbelievers. In Revelation chapter 20, and look at verse 1 and following. We're going to kind of pick out a couple statements here and then work through that in order to express and explain, hopefully, give you a better picture on the issue of hell. In verse 1, he says, "I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand." Mark that word abyss. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and there's that word again, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. From where? From the abyss. In verse 7, when the thousand years are completed at the end of the millennium, Satan will be released from his what? Prison, and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came in verse nine up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now, let me just, quick word about Gog and Magog. It it appears that this is a separate Gog and Magog, a separate worldwide war uh, than Ezekiel chapter 38. And for one particular reason, in verse 15 of Ezekiel 38, it says, You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. When we're looking at Revelation, it's very clear that the Gog and Magog that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, it says that they will be gathered for war and they will come from the four corners of the earth. Now those are two very different pictures of where the armies are actually coming from. So I would suggest that Ezekiel 38 is a different war than what we see in Revelation 20. But in the midst of that, What we have here is a final place of punishment for Satan. And in verse 10, he says, The devil who deceived them, meaning Satan, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the final place of punishment for Satan. It's at the end of the thousand years. It's after he deceives the nations and Gog and Magog take place and they come against the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and they're destroyed by fire. And then we have the great white throne judgment and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and all of Hades and death give up the dead, meaning the unbelievers. And we have the second resurrection and all of them are thrown into the lake of fire of fire, which is what we would look at or call hell. There's two phrases, I think, that in the midst of this, we want to understand perhaps a bit more this morning. First of all, He threw him into the abyss. Satan is chained. He is placed into prison in verse 7. Satan's released from his prison. So the abyss is called in effect a prison. And he's held there for a thousand years where he is in bondage specifically so that he will not deceive the nations, which by the way, what is Satan doing right now? He's deceiving the nations. From what? From believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But during the millennium, he will be bound, he will be thrown into the abyss, and he will be chained. He will be held there until the end of the millennium where he will be released and he will deceive the nations. Those people who have given lip service, have professed allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, but have not actually believed in him for salvation, they will be deceived, they will come against the Lord, they'll be destroyed by fire, and ultimately they'll be thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan and his demons, along with the Antichrist and the false prophet. So in the midst of that, the question is, what is the abyss or prison? Where do the spirits of the unbelieving go when they die? When the great white throne judgment takes place and death and Hades give up its dead, what does that actually mean? What is death and what is Hades or Hades? Stephanie's always getting on me. I need to call it Hades. I don't know why I say Hades. Do y'all say Hades? Do y'all? I've got to just say it. It's Hades. I'm sorry. I don't know why I say Hades, but I do. So amen. You got something for free in the working of my mind. I mean, it's okay. (laughs) Hades. Hades. There are several different words used to describe either the same place and/or a specific location within it, and I think this is important to understand. Let me give you a, kind of a snapshot of it, and then we'll look through it in more detail. First of all, Hades, and/or what we would call in the Old Testament what is called Sheol, it's the place of the unknown, it's the place of the dead. So Hades in the New Testament, which is the Greek idea, or Sheol in the Old Testament, which was the Hebrew idea. Secondly, there's Abraham's bosom, or paradise as it's called. It's one of the parts of Hades, and it's the part that is actually a holding place for those who were believers prior to the coming of Christ, prior to the death of Christ. And we'll look at that a little bit more closely as well. There's Gehenna. Have you heard of Gehenna? Gehenna which is uh, commonly translated as hell. The Lord, when he spoke of hell, used the word Gehenna almost exclusively. And I believe he's talking about the end time. He's talking about the lake of fire. He's talking about the final judgment when we talk about Gehenna or hell. And of course, there's the lake of fire. There's in Peter, he talks about Tartarus, which is a prison or a holding area for demons thought to be in a section of Hades, or there's the abyss or the pit even, as the abyss is called the pit in certain passages. Now, this is not Greek mythology. (laughs) Greek mythology is uh, interesting in and of itself, but certainly some of the words here are used in Greek mythology. Uh, We're looking at the word of God, which is true. I believe it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's right. In all that it speaks of with regard to reality, it's true. And so we believe the literal translation, and we believe that there is actually a place called Hades or uh, Sheol, etc. And as a result, we would recognize, I believe, that the Word of God speaks to how we can be saved from this place, forgiven so that we don't have to go there and be eternally separated from God. So let me kind of walk through this. First two, Hades and Sheol, and certainly Abraham's bosom, or paradise. We know this is a real place, why? Because the Lord spoke of it. He didn't speak of it in figurative language, he didn't speak of it it in, in the sense of spiritualizing stuff. We we don't believe in in some idea that everybody's going to be saved and just takes a matter of time. We don't believe in a purgatory where you're just held and if enough people pay money up here, uh, they'll get you out of there quicker. We believe that you need to be saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and when you die, that opportunity to be saved is done. It's final. Now think about that. I think somehow we've lost the urgency of the message of the gospel of grace and salvation and rescue. Because maybe we have forgotten about the fact that hell is a real place. The Lord spoke of it as a real place. Not in figurative language, not in an allegory, not in spiritualizing it, but actually as a place you do not want to go. Matthew chapter 11, 23, and there's many passages on this, folks. I mean, you can look at word studies all day long on this. Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, the Lord's talking about Capernaum, and he says, Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend, where? To Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Now, apart from... Uh, the soteriological impact of that, recognize that what he's saying here is there is a place called Hades and an entire group of people are going there. Why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't believe. The Lord gives us a story about two real people and it's the story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. This is not a parable. This is not an allegory. This isn't just a a story to make a point, which is what a parable is, but rather this is an actual account of these two individuals. And we know that because he starts out in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, he says, now there was. This is an emphatic declaration that there actually were two individuals. There was a rich man as well as a poor man Named Lazarus. That word was is in the imperfect active indicative. Indicative meaning that this is a reality. Imperfect meaning that this had taken place at some point in the past and these two individuals had not ceased from existence even though they had died. They were actually still souls alive. And I'm not going to go through the entire story with you, but I want to give you this picture because it's, it's such a vivid picture with regard to where unbelievers go even today to wait for the great white throne judgment. In Luke 16, verse 23, it says this about the rich man. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in what? Torment. And saw Abraham far away and Lazarus... Now, let me give you this picture. The the rich man went to a portion of Hades that was a place of torment. That's what it says. Lazarus, the poor man, went to a place called Abraham's bosom, or perhaps what we would call paradise. And it was a place of comfort. Abraham was comforting him. Abraham was there. Now, I don't understand how all this works, but evidently, the rich man was able to look across this vast gulf, and he was able to see that Lazarus was being comforted, and he wanted Lazarus to come over to him in order to give him a drop of water because he was in that much torment. And Abraham basically tells him, I can't do that. Look at the gulf. And the rich man goes on to say, well, can you send him back in order to tell my brother's and Abraham basically says they have the law, they have the prophets. If they don't believe that, they won't even believe a dead man who has rised again from the dead, right? An individual that's rised again from the dead, which is prophetic with regard to Christ. If you don't believe the law and the prophets, you're not even gonna believe in the resurrection because the law and the prophets speak of the resurrection. So what do we learn from this? Well, Hades is a place where there is evidently at least two areas, one of which is Abraham's bosom, and it was a place of comfort. The other area was a place of torment. And folks, I find this absolutely fascinating. Why are the Old Testament saints in this place of comfort? What are they waiting for? Well, I would suggest to you that they're waiting for the death, burial, and resurrection, in effect, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus had not come to this earth. He had not shed his blood, yet... He had not paid with his blood for these individual sins. How did the Old Testament saints get saved? They looked forward to the coming of Christ. How are we saved? We look back to what Christ did at the cross. What's the difference? The Old Testament saints did not inherit or were not given the Holy Spirit permanently. We are as a down payment of our salvation. The Old Testament saints, when they died, they went to paradise or Abraham's bosom and they were waiting for the death of Christ and the shedding of his blood for the payment of their sin. That's already been accomplished for us. And as a result, we're immediately cleansed. When we die, we don't have to go to Abraham's bosom. Makes it very clear, and we'll look at this later, that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Praise God for that. Folks, when we we die, we immediately are in the presence of the Lord. We will be awaiting our what? Our glorified body. We haven't gotten that yet. So in the midst of this, there's a place of suffering. There's a place of comfort. When Jesus Christ, and this is what I believe, and I'm going to give you my rendition on it. (laughs) But when Jesus Christ died at the cross, he told the thief, today you'll be with me, in where? Paradise, and I believe he's talking about Abraham's bosom. Why? Because I believe the Lord went there. And what did he do? I believe he took captive the captives. From Ephesians we learn that. And in Colossians, this is a beautiful picture and go study it and I'm just gonna give you my rendition on it. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ in effect descended to that portion of Hades and all the Old Testament saints were there awaiting for him and he took captive the captives and he ushered them through the second heaven into the third heaven. And as he did that, Colossians tells us that as he was ascending, that he was making powerless the satanic forces that would somehow try to to prevent him from getting into the very heavens in order to make propitiation for our sin. And he was literally stripping off of himself the demons that were trying to prevent him from getting into heaven because he had all authority and all power. And the whole host of the Old Testament saints were with him and he ushered them into heaven. And the first man was able to walk into heaven because he was the Lamb of God. Wow. Folks, when you think about this, it's amazing to recognize. Give him an applause for heaven's sakes. Don't be half-hearted about it. Look what God did for us. He took the Old Testament saints with him into heaven. All of those who were in that portion of Hades that were there because they did not believe in the coming of a Messiah saw this. Now, I can't even imagine that. Can you? That moment where you begin with memory, with knowledge, with understanding. Did the rich man know that he still had family? Did the rich man know Lazarus? Did the rich man have cognitive ability? Yes, he did. And to see that take place, uh, that must have been horrific. Horrific. And now, when people die, where do they go? They go to this place of suffering where they're awaiting a final judgment. And we're gonna see this at the end, at the great white throne judgment. They're then cast into the lake of fire forever. Indescribable. Peter in his sermon at Pentecost affirmed Hades. In Acts chapter two, Verse 27, he says, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Think about that. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who goes to Hades but then has the right to take all the Old Testament saints into heaven itself, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. I don't know if you've ever studied that or not, but that is fascinating because the body of Jesus in the tomb did not decay. Why not? Because he had no sin. Think about that. I'll let you dwell on that a little bit. In Acts chapter two, verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades or Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And he's speaking of David who was a prophet who had been given the word that one of his descendants was gonna sit on the throne. And David recognized the uniqueness of that prophecy recognized that this was the Messiah that would come through his line that would rule and reign over the earth and sit on his throne and that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor would his flesh suffer decay. In Revelation 1:18, the Lord declares his authority over Hades. He says this, the living one, he's speaking of himself. I am the living one and I was dead and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Wow. It's incredible, folks. The Lord's in charge, he's in authority over Hades. Well, there's also Gehenna and the lake of fire, and again, hell was created for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25 makes that very clear. Verse 41, he says, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from the accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Speaking of hell, the lake of fire, Gehenna. He says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of what? Gehenna, of hell. Speaking of that end moment, the lake of fire, eternal separation from God, and eternal torment. Jesus certainly warned of the severity of hell and you can read through Mark chapter 9 and look at all the different ways in which he warns and again, I don't believe that at this particular moment, like for instance in verse 43, if your hand caused you to stumble, cut it off. I don't believe the Lord's literally saying uh, if your hand causes you to stumble, then you literally physically need to cut it off. He's using this as an illustration of how severe hell will be and how absolutely essential it is to believe in him because you do not want to go there. He says it's better for you to enter life crippled than having to, you, your two hands to go into hell or Gehenna, into the what unquenchable fire? Or Mark nine forty eight, where he's speaking of what it's like to be cast into hell, and he says this: where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, suffering forever. Warren Wiersbe comments on this, and this is actually a quote out of Isaiah chapter sixty-six, verse twenty-four, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Wiersbe puts it this way: the word translated "hell" is Gehenna. It comes from a Hebrew phrase, the Valley of Hinnon, referring to an actual valley outside Jerusalem where wicked King Ahaz worshipped Moloch, the fire god, and even sacrificed his children in the fire. There, there was a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem where at one point in Jerusalem or Israel's history, King Ahaz had worshipped Moloch, which is the fire god, and even sacrificed his children there. And it ultimately became a dump. And there was fire constantly burning, and there were worms constantly eating the trash. And this became the picture of Gehenna, or the lake of fire, or hell. Indescribable. Well, there's also Tartarus, or the abyss, or the pit, which is a prison or holding area for demons And I would suggest that it is in that section of Hades that is the suffering section. There's many different moments where you can see this throughout the New Testament and even the Old. But the story of the demon-possessed man. Remember the man who was possessed by the demon? The demon says he's legion. In Luke chapter 8, verse 31, as the Lord is speaking directly to this demon named Legion, and it maybe have been multitudes of demons within them. I would take that uh, viewpoint because of what happened. But it says in Luke 8, 31, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into where? The abyss, meaning the pit, meaning the special place where some demons are being held until the judgment. This is where I believe Satan will be held for the thousand years, the abyss. The reason I say legion is because the Lord allowed them to come out of the man and go where? Into a herd of pigs that then ran off the cliff into the sea. In Revelation 9, verses 1 through 2, we see the fifth trumpet. We looked at this earlier or later last year. The fifth trumpet is the opening of the bottomless pit where demons are released in order to torment mankind. You can see it in verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. So the the angel or the king over the abyss is Satan himself. And you can see, read through that chapter again to be reminded of the fifth trumpet where the smoke is released and out of the smoke come these demons. Where are they being held? They're being held in the bottomless pit. They're being held in the abyss. And Satan is the king over the abyss. In 2 Peter 2.4, Peter alludes to this. As does Jude, but I just want to look at 2 Peter 2, 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. There's your word, Tartarus. The idea is that they were a part of pits of darkness, that they're reserved for judgment. There's a special holding area as part of the suffering arena of Hades where there is a place where demons are being held, bound, chained. Wiersbe again says this, Peter said that some of the angels were confined to Tartarus or hell, which is a Greek word for the underworld. Tartarus may be a special section of hell where these angels are chained in pits of darkness, awaiting the final judgment. Or the New American Commentary agrees with this. In any case, the term Tartarus suggests that the angels are both confined and restrained because of their sin. What a wicked place. What a horrific nightmare. Hades, I believe, is two parts. Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. Abraham's bosom is a place of rest, paradise. The Old Testament saints were there waiting for the death of Christ, the payment for their sin, of the shed blood of the lamb. And they are no longer there. They are now in heaven. They're waiting for their glorified bodies, which takes place at the end of the tribulation, before the millennium, which is all a part of the first resurrection. But the second part of Hades is a place of suffering. And there are certainly areas within that place of suffering that are holding areas, the pit or the abyss, specifically for demons. All unbelievers today go to the suffering part of Hades and are awaiting the great white throne judgment upon which they'll be cast into hell, the lake of fire. Folks is God just? Yes he is. Second Thessalonians chapter one verses six through eight. State this, for after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He is just. I like what Dr. Meisinger Writes about this in terms of hell and unbelievers going there. He says, as hell is self imposed alienation from the life and presence of God. From the vantage point of eternity, the unbeliever willfully and obstinately spurned the grace of God, rejecting the only source of forgiveness, eternal life, and reconciliation. Thus, he brought upon himself eternal alienation. Jesus Christ's death on the cross dramatically exhibited alienation as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ experienced there the alienation of hell for you and me so that we would not have to experience it for ourselves. To reject Jesus Christ's substitutionary bearing of one's hell on the cross is to accept the bearing of one's own hell for eternity. Wow. That's sobering, to say the least. Folks, we have good news, don't we? Boy, we have great news. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. God is just. Those who refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be forgiven, have no hope, and they will suffer eternally for us as believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, we are told this, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. What a beautiful truth. What do we have to fear? (laughs) What do we have to fear? God Almighty, who is in charge, not only of our physical lives, but also our souls, has made us a promise that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be what? Saved. Forgiven. (laughs) We have hope. We have a story to tell, folks. We have a witness. We can bear truth to what God has done in our lives. And all people around us who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, we need to be willing to say, friend, let me tell you something. Let me share with you the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope that we have. I wonder sometimes if we have forgotten how hellish hell really is. Anybody there? Sometimes we need to be reminded of it, to be reminded of what we've been rescued from. And now what we have an opportunity to share with others that they too have the opportunity of being rescued from. Folks, we live in an amazing world, don't we? There's so many things going on right now, it's incredible. I don't know if Revelation has woken you up to that. I sure hope it has, it has me even more so than ever before the need that every one of us has to simply yield to the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk with him day by day, to say yes to him, to recognize the truth of his absolute authority. Are we walking with him day by day? Is the hope that we have in Christ based on his word, not a wish on our part, not just something that we've come up with to psychologically make ourselves feel better, but the truth of the word of God the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Has that so permeated everything that we do and everything that we say that people are coming to us asking, what is the hope that you have? How are you walking through that circumstance with joy? How is it that you respond in the way that you respond with grace and kindness and peace? How is it that you love one another in that way? How are we walking in such a way that this hope, this assurance that we've been given by the Lord himself so permeates our lives that we are walking as children of light in a very dark and fallen world? I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of what God's doing around me, don't you? I want to be a part of what God is accomplishing and what God is working towards in terms of the salvation of souls. and I want to see people grow in Christ to the point of maturity to where they're able to then share their testimony with the people around them that need to hear of the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you? Folks, I believe that that's what we're called to in so many ways. How are we walking in that truth?